You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Every generation of the faithful must learn and relearn the vocabularies and symbols and narratives of the faith. And theology in an era of hyper-literacy, when so many write, demands different disciplines than theology did in moments when so few read and even fewer wrote. In his most recent book, A Fellowship of Difference, Scott McKnight frames the central stories and ideas of Christianity in terms of community, presenting an alternative to that latent modern meta-narrative of all-powerful consumer choice, and calling Christians to think of life together as the real locus of God's work in the world. Today, Christian Humanist Profiles is happy to invite Dr. McKnight to the program. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be invited and good to be with you. Well, one of the early challenges to Christians, one of your early challenges to Christians, is to think of the church as a community that renders visible people that we late moderns often treat as invisible. I see in your project a call to regard the very old, the very young, widows and women as the face of Christ. Why is that challenge in particular so important to Christians in the 21st century? I mean, this is a really good question. It's a dense question. I probably could take two hours to answer. <laughs> but uh, I, I think a, a couple of things come to mind for me. The first is this, and that is that God is the author of all of life and the creator of all human beings. And in a world where we maximize personal choice, and I'm talking about Western people who have sufficient financial conditions to be able to make choices like this, in a world where we maximize choice, and in a religious environment where most of us get to pick our church, we have resulted in churches that are like us rather than unlike us. In other words, if I get to choose, we all know this from sociology and psychology, if we get to choose who we want to have dinner with, we're going to choose our friends. If we get to choose who we're going to go to church with, we're going to choose churches that are filled with people like us who are our friends, so that our churches become cultures that are very similar to our own hopes and expectations. Well, this means, whether we care to intend it or not, whether we care to pay attention or not, this means that our churches are probably more exclusive than they are inclusive, which is a way of saying that when we get to choose our churches, we unchoose other people, and we choose not to go to church with people who are not like us. That's that's the foundation. Now, the other idea in this is God is the author of all of life, and he's the creator of all. He's the redeemer of all, so that God has in mind a kind of redemption that saves all sorts of people, which means God's family of people is unimaginably diverse and different. God has filled this world with all kinds of different people, and he loves all these people, 
and our churches are a way of saying that God only loves our sorts. So I believe that Paul's vision for the church, in that uh, in that it is a church of different kinds of people, I call them difference, mm-hmm. a church that is made up of Jews and Gentiles, not just Jews, and that was a struggle for Paul and for other Jewish Christians, uh, a church that's made up of slave and free, not just free, as many people would have been, and a church made of male and female. And Paul adds in a later letter in Colossians, Scythians and barbarians. So now he's, what he's trying to say is that the church is a fellowship of all sorts of people. So I believe that we have to learn to live into God's dream for his people, rather than simply following our own instincts and following or, or finding fellowship with people who are like us. Mm-hmm. We have to see the greatness of diversity in that sense, that God wants a church made up of people across the spectrum. And our churches are faithful to the degree that they reflect the spectrum of our society and culture. Mm-hmm. I've got a question to follow up on that. Uh, a recent Christianity Today essay talked about how the mega church is a function of car culture, and I think that that sociological analysis is basically right. I, I suppose my question is, I mean, do you see the church as it existed before the automobile as more diverse? I mean, have people done studies on that to indicate that the homogeneity that you talk about is also a function of that car culture or is that something that, you know, has always been with us and it's always been a challenge to us? I haven't seen this article. Is it arguing that our that churches are a car culture and that only people who have cars that can drive to that setting are the people who are in that church? Is that what it's saying? Well, it, it makes a point very similar to what uh, you just made, namely that, you know, as people's mobility gets multiplied by the automobile, that churches actually become more homogenous. Yeah, yeah, okay. All right. I, I see what it's saying there. Um, look, the the um, the ideal, in the sense, or let's just say one end of the spectrum, mm-hmm. is that there is one church in uh, for every uh, 5,000 people in a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's just say, let's just draw an arbitrary number. For every 5,000, every 1,000 homes, there's one church. And the people then have to go to that church because it's a parish. Now, this is the way churches were organized until, uh, maybe this is what Christianity Today was bringing out, until a car until a car culture developed in which people drove to their churches rather than walked to their churches. Mm-hmm. Uh, we walked to our, I mean, we drove to our church uh, in our town when I grew up. We could have walked, I suppose. We never thought about it. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that that's right. I do think that car cultures or whatever, however they want to talk about it, has maximized our ability to choose, and the instinct is that we will choose a church that is uh, most like us. All right. Well, I want to turn to uh, a really good discussion in this book about the notion of love. And one of the things that you take some time early in the book to lay out is that we should follow certain rules about talking about love as the Bible presents it. Uh, For our listeners, summarize what those rules are 
and what sorts of ideas typically arise when we ignore these rules as you lay them out in this book? Yeah, I think if you ask the ordinary person uh, what what love is, most people think they know what it is. Most people do not want to get in the game of defining it because they don't often operate with definitions. Mm-hmm. That's sort of a scholar's game. <laughs> uh, but uh, what I have learned is that most people have absorbed the sort of definition of love that we find in our English dictionaries, which is based upon American usage, and that is that it is sort of a deep affection for another person, a deep emotional affection. Uh, In studying the meaning of love, and I'm a Bible professor, and I'm a Bible guy, and I want to define my terms, biblical, I want to define my theology on the basis of what the Bible says, not on what I find in an English dictionary. Mm -hmm. Uh, On the the basis of studying the Bible, I came up with kind of two rules. Uh, the, The first rule is don't go to the English dictionary, and the second rule is watch God love in the Bible to understand what love is. And mm-hmm. that's uh, sort of things I, I noticed is that when I was teaching college students, how often I had to say this because students would use the word love in ways, and I'd say, you know, that, I don't think that's what the Bible means by love. And then I would have to say, you know, we can't define this by going to an English dictionary. We have to watch how God loves people, how he loved Israel, how he loved his son, and how he loves the church. That is how we learn what love is. And in studying the Bible's understanding of love, I became convinced that the core idea of love in the Bible comes through the, uh, the biblical idea of a covenant. I find the word covenant to be so religious in its sensibilities that most people... Um, embrace the word covenant and don't know what it means. So I reworked <laughs> that, uh, the word covenant, into a rugged commitment. Uh, and I also think that this leans in the direction of the way actual loving relationships work out. Most loving relationships are not perfect. They are instead, uh, they go between the sublime and the difficult. And love is a rugged commitment rather than just a beautiful, joyous commitment every moment of every day. So covenant is translated as a rugged commitment. And then what I observed, in the, especially in the Old Testament, as it progresses, and these themes show up very important places in the New Testament, that love is a rugged commitment to be with someone. I call this the principle of presence, and sometimes we call it proximity. And that is, love is a rugged commitment to be in another person's presence on an ongoing basis as a, as a part of that commitment. You can't be committed to someone and never be around them. Uh, you want to be with them. So it's a rugged commitment to be with. And so then, so if the first element is the rugged commitment. The second is a commitment to be with. The third is that it's a rugged commitment to be for someone. Love is a commitment uh, of advocacy so that the other person uh, understands and embraces that you are in their corner and you've got their back. And then the the final element of love is that it is a rugged commitment to be with someone, to be before someone, 
and then it has direction, it is to be, uh, it is a rugged commitment to move unto Christ's likeness. So that genuine love in the Bible is a mutual commitment of growth and transformation into Christ's likeness. Now, I, I take this from things like the tabernacle in the Old Testament, where God is with people uh, in, you know, in a cloud of fire and smoke. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is found in the temple where God abides with his people. Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. Uh, and the final vision of the book of Revelation, Yahweh, our God, the God of the Bible, is going to dwell, this is an expression, I will be with you. So this is a commitment of presence. But this commitment of presence in the Old Testament takes on covenant shape where God says to Israel over and over, I will be your God and you will be my people. This is a rugged commitment on God's part that he is in the corner of Israel. He will be fighting for them, protecting them, guiding them, teaching them, leading them. So it's an advocacy as well. And then the untuness of the Bible, this direction of Christ's likeness, uh, grows as it becomes, as Christ is revealed. But Yahweh's, uh, Israel's God says, uh, I am holy, be holy. So what God is, is to take on embodied existence and structure among his people. So God wants us to become what God has designed us to become. And his loving relationship with us is a kind of transformation so that we become like God. So this is where I am on the understanding of love, that it is a rugged commitment to be with someone, to be for someone, as we walk together unto Christ's likeness. Now, here's where it gets really, really difficult. I find a lot of people totally agree with my definition Uh, and then say, I wish I didn't know this definition, because (laughs) in our our church age today, we prefer likes rather than unlikes, and the importance of love is given in the Bible because of the unlikes, not the likes. We naturally love people who are like us. We don't prefer to be with people who are unlike us, and yet the Bible calls us to turn enemies into neighbors by loving them. So I often uh, look at my audiences when I'm preaching, and I look at my students when I'm teaching, and I'm on the radio now, so I'm looking at people that way, and I, and I ask people, who are your enemies? And it's not very difficult for most of us to identify our enemies. Uh, Americans, as a stereotype, don't like Muslims. They don't like people of a different political party. They don't like people of a different socioeconomic level. They don't like people who are, in, you know, who have different sexualities. Uh, they don't like people who have different theological ideas. And Jesus calls us to love them, and that sounds like a great idea until you realize what it means. And that is, do you really love them? And if you do, that means you have made a rugged commitment to spend time with them to communicate to them that you are for them, and to learn from them and to grow with them into Christ's likeness. So uh, that's, uh, that's a long answer to your question, brother. Well, and I like that answer because it highlights a certain tension 
in the biblical notion of love as I understand it as well, namely that at the same time it is unswervingly for the neighbor, but that that quality of being for the neighbor is encompassed by that larger picture of moving towards a final goodness. Uh, so in other words, I yeah. mean, I, I think yeah. that I think that it should make uneasy both those people who say, I love my neighbor, so I'm never going to tell them that, you know, I'm never going to call what they do into question. And also those people who say, yeah. I have to call my neighbors into question because they're wrong and I've got to let them know they're yeah. wrong. So, I mean, I, yeah. I, I, what I like about it is that it leaves things difficult. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's, e it's easy to talk about the unto if you don't have to get involved with the with and the for. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And in other words, it's, it's not really a rugged commitment. You just become kind of a prophetic voice. Yeah. And, uh, and, and you know, that's even what... more difficult. Oh, that's, that's where uh, Walter... Mm-hmm. It's, it's even more difficult if you have if you have someone you don't particularly like, mm -hmm. a neighbor, and you make a rugged commitment to be with them and for them, and the untuness is not happening. But you are ruggedly committed to them, and you're in this journey of life with them till the end of time. That is that, that's the challenge of love in our world today, and uh, I think that's what it means to love someone. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to turn to a couple places in the book. You you make note that Paul's work as a tent maker, and that's a phrase that folks who are familiar with the New Testament should hear and recognize. You say that that would have been more scandalous by far than the contemporary term bivocational might strike us. Uh, what importance does Paul's career as a craftsman hold for your project in A Fellowship of Difference? Um. I mean, the point I'm making uh, when we talk about Paul as a tent maker and that it was scandalous is that Paul lived in a world, uh, the Roman world, and he's dealing here, this whole tent making tension was created with the Corinthians. The Corinthians and Paul lived in a world of honor and shame, and it was incredibly honoring to the Corinthian Christians and probably to wealthy people in their midst to be able to hire and pay for a teacher so that they could lay claim to this teacher's glory. For instance, um, Alexander, of, uh, Alexander the Great, Philip of Macedon, his father, employed Aristotle, and this brought great honor to the court and to the house household of Philip of Macedon and Alexander the Great because they were connected with the great Aristotle. All right, so the Corinthians want to employ Paul and gain honor from it. Paul chooses to work. And not only to work, he chooses to do the kind of work that no philosopher, no teacher, no honorable person did in that world. He worked with his hands and consumed his time, whereas the great philosophers and teachers um, saw manual laborers as people who did things so that the intelligent philosopher kings like that Plato wanted and that Aristotle believed in, that they could go about their business of, as cultural elites. Paul was, a, in, in that sense, was the cultural elite 
who chose not to be elite, but chose instead to do the, the scum of the earth kind of work in order to embrace the cross for himself and for the community. And the Corinthians didn't like the configuration that Paul created. They wanted the honor that came with hiring a, a famous teacher, and Paul begged them to take the cross as a serious image rather than uh, status and honor in the Roman world. So, you know, I, I find the more I study the Apostle Paul, the more radical he was and the more cruciform his existence. He, he wanted the cross and resurrection to shape everything he said and did. And uh, I'm just super impressed with this guy. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to turn back to your very strident criticism of American Christianity, namely that we tend to seek out affinity rather than what Paul would recognize as unity. Now, what does a new mind, as St. Paul presents it, see that a mind governed by the 21st century world's conventions miss? So what can a transformed mind can see that a 21st century mind untransformed misses? And moreover, what do spiritual gifts have to do with Christian unity? Uh, that last one came in uh, as a bit of a surprise, but I, I see where you're going. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, you're asking me to put on the, Paul, the mind of Paul here. And the mind sure of I am. Christ. <laughs> I, I you're a Bible professor. Possible, <laughs> yeah, I think, that Paul, I think that Paul would look at our churches today, and he would be embarrassed, and he would become very strident himself about a couple things. Number one our lack of zeal for holiness. I mean, this was a man who grew up in a world of kodesh, is the Hebrew word, of holiness. Mm -hmm. he, he was surrounded by people who followed the Torah and knew the absolute splendor and glory of God, and he would be offended by our casualness, our uh, lack of zeal for holiness. A second thing I think where Paul would critique us is our uh, economic stratification that shows up on Sundays. And we have encoded this in so many ways. We sit in fairly luxurious buildings with luxurious um, seats and everything around us done very well, air conditioning, etc., cetera, uh, expensive buildings. We pay big salaries to ministers we pay a lot of money for our musical instruments. And Paul lived a life of generosity and a life that was committed to raising money for the poor saints of Jerusalem so he could never have participated in the form of luxury and indulgence that we participate in. I'm not saying that Paul didn't occasionally enjoy a party. I'm sure he did. Uh, the point is that it was rare rather than we, we have so much in our world today in, for Western Christians that we don't even know that most of our meals would be a party for the Apostle Paul. Mm -hmm. and, and the third thing I think that Paul would be deeply offended by is our ethnic and uh, gendered divisions in our churches. Um, Paul's mission... I often put it this way. His mission wasn't to get Gentiles saved. 
His mission was to get saved Gentiles to enjoy fellowship with saved Jews. His mission was to get saved slaves to enjoy fellowship with slave free people. And his mission was to get saved males to enjoy fellowship with saved females. So Paul's mission was to rip apart the boundaries and the dividing lines between human beings. And I think Paul would look in our churches, I mean, he could look in a lot of our churches and say, where are your African-Americans? I see them in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. Where are your Asian-Americans? I see them in the marketplace. Where are your Latin-Americans? I see them in the marketplace. Uh, Why is your church so ethnically the same? And I think Paul would call us on the spot on these sorts of things. And he and I think Paul would also say, I don't know where you are on this one, but it probably doesn't matter at this moment. Uh, I think he'd look at our church and say, why are men doing everything on mm-hmm. Sundays and women doing everything the rest of the week? Yeah. And I, I think he'd call us on the carpet for these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. On spiritual gifts. I've been impressed in reading the spiritual gift lists. And, you know, the big one is in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Mm-hmm. But you see them in, in Romans 14 as well, mm-hmm. and a little bit in First Peter. Um, what we see in these lists uh, is a list of things, actions, behaviors, gifts, we call them, that Christians are given by the power of the Spirit and the energy of God to accomplish for the sake of the Church. But what I notice about them is that they are designed uh, to create unity in the church. They are not designed so that we can become a deeper and more experience-based Christian. So it's not individually, it's not about individual formation. Spiritual gifts are given exclusively for community formation. And we need these because on our own, we would create fellowships of the same, and Paul wants us to create fellowships of difference, and the only way we are going to be able to enjoy and aggressively pursue in a proactive manner fellowships of difference is for the Spirit of God to give us gifts that we would not otherwise have Otherwise, we will just operate in our flesh, and we will be fellowships of the same. So spiritual gifts are given for the sake of the unity of the church and mm-hmm. for no other reason. Yeah, and I, and I, was, I actually taught through uh, the whole book of uh, 1 Corinthians here recently, and, and precisely what you're describing here struck me that you know what, what seems to make St. Paul angriest is that people are using their gifts as a pretense for factions uh that the people who spoke in tongues held themselves as superior to the healers and the healers as superior to the generous and so on and so forth uh so so it's fascinating that you know i i taught that and then i read your book and i said all right i i agree with scott mcknight (laughs) well you know the other side of it is that in our world today Mm -hmm. uh, in the uh it's often called the spiritual formation movement People want want uh, uh, Christians to identify their gift, mm-hmm. so that they can figure out their own identity. Now, 
I, I think that that is a half story. So I, I don't deny anything about that. I do think we need to identify our gift, and I think it's important for us to form our identity in the context of the church. But very often, it doesn't go much further. It doesn't go in the direction of realizing that we now have an identity in a group rather than a personal identity that gives us meaning. In other words, the spiritual formation sometimes can say, if you understand what gift you are, you can be happy and you will sense your meaning in life. Mm -hmm. That's very individualistic and personal. Whereas for Paul, I think it would be, no, you will understand that this church needs that gift so that this church can become a, a single body witnessing to the transforming and boundary-breaking grace of God in this world. Instead of just you thinking about what you get to do, I think you need to see, I think Paul would say, you get to see the results of what God can do through you for the sake of the body. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. I've been reading about Aristotle and Plato recently, and both of them were obsessed with the polis, the Greek word for city. Mm-hmm. and that everything that they did in politics, everything that they were focused on was how to make, let's say, Athens uh, or some great uh, city-state in, in ancient Greece a, a noble place. So it was all about the polis. It wasn't about themselves. It was about the city. And I think that Paul, in using the word body, is using the kind of language that was used in the ancient world for the city. Mm-hmm. So Paul sees the church as a new kind of city-state. It's pretty it's pretty impressive. Oh, yeah, and along those same lines, of course, the word ecclesia uh, was the name yeah. for the political assembly in Athens before it was the name for the Christian assembly in the first century. Yeah, yeah I don't think that's yeah. coincidence either. <laughs> no, it's clearly they think that they have an alternative... They have an alternative Demos, which is the people. Mm-hmm. They have an alternative ecclesia, which is the gathering of the demos for making decisions mm-hmm. and to render judgment. And they have an alternative king, an mm-hmm. alternative emperor named Jesus. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's very shrewd stuff here. <laughs> well, Scott, you mentioned holiness earlier, and I want to talk about that. I liked your section on holiness in this book, not least because you put common conception of holiness. To, to what I think of as just some good old-fashioned Socratic questioning, what is it that makes the conventional notion of holiness as being set apart inadequate for talking about holiness in the New Testament? And what alternatives do you set forth in this book that you see as more promising? Well, um, good one. Um, I see you've read this book. Um, I guess. Holiness... <laughs> it was good. <laughs> holiness is, under, is understood normally as being separate from. And uh, I I get that, but it's such a half story. And because it's a half story, it leads to very serious distortions. Let's just say that holiness means to be separate from. And and I I have to admit, I grew up believing this because I was taught it. Mm -hmm. And when you start reading the Bible, you're just using the categories that people have given you. So for a long time, I sort of embraced this. Genuinely, uh, the genuine implication of understanding holiness as separation from leads 
Christians to separate themselves from the world and Christians to separate themselves from other Christians who aren't in their category. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it becomes then almost entirely a negative posture. It becomes, I'm not like that, I'm separate from. Well, Mm -hmm. you know... I, I have I had the privilege for 17 years of teaching the whole Bible. I didn't just get to read the New Testament. And over and over, I'd come up, I'd, I'd encounter the book of Leviticus, where the word holiness is, is important, and the category of holiness is important. And I noticed this, that holiness in the Old Testament is a full story rather than a half story. So it's not just separate from. And if you only have separate from, you have half the story, and it distorts it. All right, now, here's where I am. Holiness is devotedness to something that leads to separation from something else. That which is devoted to God has been separated from the world. When we take the idea of holiness as little more than separation from, it becomes a negative rather than the glorious positive that it actually is, which is, that we are devoted to God, and therefore we are different from the world. We are not different from the world as an end unto itself. It's our devotion to God that creates the difference from the world. Without the first devotion, the separation becomes a negative virtue and largely critique and judgment of the world rather than affirmation of God. So in the Bible, we see this all the time. And, and uh, you know, I use an illustration from Paul's letters here, because this book is about how Paul understands the Christian life in the context of living in a fellowship with others. And that is, Paul constantly goes back and forth between what we are to do and what we are not to do. It's a serious mistake to, categor- to, to list the negatives as holiness, and not see the positives as holiness. So to love God is an act of holiness, and because we love God, we don't love the world. That's, that's, a, that's a definition of holiness, is that we are so in love with God that we do not love the world. So we are committed to generosity to others, and therefore we are not like the world in its stinginess and in its... Uh, <clears throat> virtual theft from others because we refuse to give to our neighbors who are in need. Mm-hmm. So the positive and the negative gives us a complete story of what holiness is. And I believe that that correction is an important one. And I, I recently read a book on holiness that really irritated me because all <laughs> it talked about was separation from. Mm-hmm. So, well, and it's interesting because I, I realize reading your book that so often that the separation notion of holiness carries with it uh, a sort of cultural chauvinism uh, that gets uh, that that gets left unspoken uh, because after all we're not seeking simply to be you know more southern we are being more holy. I live in Georgia, yeah, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Georgia's good. The Georgia red clay. Hey, I use in, in my book uh, a golf club, mm-hmm. and I, I look at my ping irons as holy. Now, in saying that, 
I don't mean that they are uh, not going to be used for anything else, but they are they are devoted to the game of golf. So therefore, I don't I don't pull out my wedge to pound in a nail. Mm-hmm. And it's only because they're devoted to the game of golf. And if I use them for pounding nails, I would damage them for the sake of golf. So I, um, I think a golf club or certain kinds of clothing or certain kinds of relationships are holy in the sense that we are devoted to something and therefore withdrawn from other things. So mm-hmm. that's, Mm-hmm. That's that's the sort of thing right. I think we can use, and and it's another echo of that you know prophetic sense to be sure, but also that Greek sense of being for the sake of you know the the holy is yeah. something that is for the sake of a higher polis. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Well, yeah. I I do want to talk about the polis, and I want to talk about politics because when you turn to politics in the home stretch of the book it really rounds out this picture that you're presenting of the church as a real site of grace in a real world. And you begin with the genuine scandal of saying in the Roman Empire or elsewhere that everyone stands to be free in Christ. What does freedom mean in that, in that context of the church? And why is that word of liberty such an important one for Paul to speak and for us to speak for that matter? Yeah, um... It's a good question. Uh, freedom in the Roman world, a free person was someone who could participate in the political process in public assembly. Everybody else was slaves. So a free person had rights. Slaves did not have rights. I mean, people treated them overall pretty well, probably, but they were still slaves. Free people had rights. Free people had voting power. Free people um, had power. All right. So this is a radical statement by Paul when he says there is neither free nor slave, slaves nor free, and when he says all Christians are free in Christ, which means he's given them all citizenship, power, voting rights, as it were, mm-hmm. in the Christian fellowship. So that in this conclave, and you've got to imagine these people, maybe 30 maximum in a church assembly uh, in Corinth or in Greece or in Ephesus, wherever they're meeting, Colossae, they're meeting together. And in that context of that space and with one another, they were all three persons. And they had been liberated from sin They had been liberated from systemic injustices. They had been liberated from Satan. They had been liberated from death. And now they had been set free. They had been unleashed and launched into new creation. And they were going to be able to live with one another beyond the boundaries that had been created in the Roman world. Anti-honor and status of the Roman world. They all had honor. They all had status. So therefore, no one had honor and no one had status, because if everyone is of the upper class, there is no lower class. Mm-hmm. So Paul Paul creates a world of freedom, and it becomes, in a sense, a brand new kind of political assembly, one where there is a radical shift uh, uh, into the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. 
Now, the other big move that you make with regards to church and politics is you say pretty explicitly that whatever good the nation-state might do, it's at most a provisional good and perhaps merely a limit for checking chaos. What responsibilities do we latter-day Bible readers have when we read about empire in the New Testament? All right. Uh, this is, you know, this is a very complex topic, and it's getting more complex because we're starting to enter into election season again, mm-hmm. which always seems to be... That, that's why I posed the question. <laughs> All right. We live in a world where there are a lot of Christians who think the primary battle is in this world is between Democrats and Republicans, uh, and there are no other battles, and that their 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 lives are dominated by uh, watching Fox News or picking up progressive news in the media that they choose, and it could be CNN or on Twitter files or their favorite websites. And as a result, uh, the progressives and the conservatives in the United States are having a culture war for control. Many Christians have entered into this battle as the fundamental battle that the church is waging in the United States. And my contention is that this is a colossal misreading of what the New Testament is actually doing. And what the New Testament is saying is, you are not a Republican and you are not a Democrat. You are a church person. And your church is your politics. That's where you embrace and embody and live out the vision God has for this world and the vision God has for the United States. So that the true battle is not the battle fought on November 6th when we vote and wake up on November 7th to see if we're winners or losers. The true battle is the battle that people, that we get in getting people into the church, surrendered to King Jesus, and living under his rule rather than the rule of a president, a king, a Democrat, or a Republican. So I, I think that the Apostle Paul is living out uh, by choosing the terms that he chooses, church, ecclesia, uh, he even uses the word polytuma, that we are a citizenship that's mm-hmm. connected to the, ci- uh, the city, uh, Paul's using political terms. There's no word more political in the whole Bible than the word kingdom, that the people that Jesus came to bring a kingdom and he's the king. The word Messiah, the word Lord, these are all very political words. That Jesus has created an alternative community in the world, that Paul sees the churches as embodiments of this alternative community, and that genuine politics by Christians is best waged by establishing healthy, vibrant churches in local communities that witness to the world and against the world as to the way God wants the world to live. So there's my, there's my mm-hmm. rant on that topic. <laughs> well, and honestly, I mean, even in years that are not election years, uh, and I just want to bounce this off of you, you know, tangentially related to this but related nonetheless I, I would think that you know the current social media environment in which legislation and voting have been replaced by cheerleading for which side you want Anthony Kennedy to come down on a Supreme Court case 
I, I would think that that would be some sort of apocalyptic unveiling of what's actually going on in the federal political scene. But it doesn't seem to be. I, <laughs> I guess for me it is. Well, I'm, I'm not quite sure when you said federal political scene. I mean, here, here's what I see. I see, um, you know, when I grew up and a newspaper wrote a crazy article, my dad and mom talked about it. Mm-hmm. And my dad might talk to it with other people at the school where he was a teacher or with his friends at church. And that's as far as it went. Well, today we can create a public outcry, uh, outrage, by, I call it crowd pounding. And mm-hmm. that is we get on we get on Twitter and we get on Facebook and we hold up to ridicule uh, Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton or Mark Driscoll or Andy Stanley or Bill Hybels, we hold them up by ridiculing something they've said or done, and then we turn the comments loose or the Twitter goes crazy and we put a hashtag with it and we just start pounding on these people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think of what uh, Throckmorton did on the Mark Driscoll case. I mean, it was a feeding frenzy on Mark Driscoll. There there were some things that Throckmorton said about Mark Driscoll that were fair, but it became a feeding frenzy that was embarrassing to the Christian community mm-hmm. because there were so many people just pounding on this person who knew nothing about it. And they were just expressing their theological politics. And this... You have to ask, is this the way I would treat a brother or sister in Christ if I knew them and they were in my church and we were having coffee together? No, we would never treat people this way. And I think that in this way, many Christians today on the conservative and on the progressive sides are more like the world, far too much like the world, and have not embraced a cruciform existence of living the way Jesus would have lived when he heard bad news about some preacher. Mm-hmm. One overarching tension remained with me as I finished the book. On one hand, you make fairly clear that those who strive for a better Christian way should not merely abandon their current congregations. On the other hand, many of your challenges to contemporary Christians involve forging communities of genuine diversity and you don't seem to let very many Christian communities off the hook that way. As folks finish hearing you today, say a few words to those who take your challenge seriously and want to strive for those higher things. How do you imagine next Sunday for those who take this book seriously? Yeah, that's a good one. A really good question. Um, First of all, um, I think that we should... I often say it this way in my classes, and I hope it makes sense. We should expect less of the church, and when we do, we will experience the more that the church has to give. Mm -hmm. And that is, a lot of people expect the church to be perfect. They go to church, and they say, my church is not perfect. I'm going to try to find the perfect church. And after about 15 years, they become what is now called the duns, or church refugees. They they Mm -hmm. say, the church is so bad, I'm not going to participate. 
I think the badness of the church is inherent to what it is. It is a hospital for sinners and not a country club for the, for the perfect. So I believe that we need to embrace the church that we actually live in. And maybe we live in a church that is segregated to the core and maybe even racist, but at least it's not as diverse as it ought to be. It's not fellowshipping across boundaries. It's not loving uh, enemies into becoming neighbors, etc. So what should we do on this? First thing is it. I think we have to examine ourselves first before we start critiquing our church. Mm-hmm. And the question I would ask is, who is your enemy, and how many enemies have you turned into your neighbors? If you've turned all your enemies into your neighbors, then you have room to talk. And until you do that, you don't have room to talk. So I want to look at people in the eye and say, you know, the problem with the church is us, it's you, it's me, it's not them. We have to get our own life together in that sense. We want to begin to embody a fellowship of difference ourselves first uh, as a part of the process. The second thing is I think we need to find people of a similar stripe in our church that we can talk to about this, that we can pray with this, that we can be patient with, that we can strive for creating the kind of church that God wants us to create. Uh, I think we need to, to do it small, start small, and work big. Uh, we have a tendency as Americans to get, a, get things out into a vote, into a ballot, and to think that we can change things at the, at the ground level by changing things structurally. And, and this is the fundamental uh, false idea that shapes Western politics that if we can change the uh, if we can change the law and change the structure, that will change the people and the reality, and it actually works the other way. So mm-hmm. instead of trying to agitate the way progressives do or conservatives do to get change, it's actually not change. It usually means the elim- elimination of people who are not like us. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that instead we need to work on ourselves, work with a few others and strive over time to help create pockets of culture, of change, and then over time enough pockets can be created to create the real change. This is not something that's going to happen overnight. This is going to be something that happens over one or more generations. So uh, the challenge is uh, to keep moving forward slowly uh, with others, without getting angry and uh, irritated with everybody who doesn't match our vision. Mm -hmm. Good, good. Well, I want to set you loose on two good words that I found in the, in the closing pages of your book. The first one is this joy is the ultimate aim of Christian life in this time between the times. And the second might not be like unto the first, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, and it's that everyone's ministry to the world can and must happen within the real limits of human life. Now, the reason I like these two so much is that they strike me as good medicine for a Christian internet culture, and we are talking on a podcast after all, that tends to elevate its professional celebrities to undue heights. 
even if you don't consider joy and tent making to be your last words in the book, pretend they are for a moment and tell me why they're important last words for a book. Uh, yeah, joy gets uh, near the end. Um, now, I, you know, your, your statement about joy broke up, so would you say that again? Yeah, you say that joy is the ultimate aim of Christian life in this time between the times. Yeah. Joy, I mean, you know, uh, being happy is not quite the, the right Christian category. But God wants us to be filled with joy so that at the deepest level of our existence, we are in love with life because we are in love with the God of life who's at work in us, and we know he's at work in us to create the kind of world he wants, and we know this world is eventually going to be put to rights, and we are going to participate in that world. That, that's the kind of joy that should uh, fill, flood our soul and swell our chest every day. But God has called we, We're real people. You know, I have mm -hmm. a job as a teacher. That means I have to grade papers and I have to mow grass and I have to plant flowers and I have to pick um, kale and chard and tomatoes. And that means I have to chop them and clean them and cut them. And, you know, it takes time. And that's what God has called me to do. That's my task. And every one of us have a task. But I believe... Um, in the great vision of J.R.R. Tolkien uh, in his little um, short story called Leaf by Niggle, that, uh, and, and Niggle uh, was someone who liked to paint leaves, and he painted a, a big canvas in his garage or his barn, and he never finished his canvas in all of life uh, because of the interruptions and doing good for his neighbors that he wasn't always happy about having to do. And when he gets to heaven, he's on a little bicycle. You can only, you can only see this from J.R.R. Tolkien's writing in, in Oxford all the time. He rides down a hill, and as he rides down a hill, he looks up and he sees a forest, and the first tree he sees is the tree that he was painting. And he realizes that the leaf that he was painting became a tree, and the tree became a forest, and the forest was filled behind it with mountains and great scenes. And I think that's what we have to see ourselves. We're, we're just painting leaves. Whatever God has called us to do, we're painting leaves. But these leaves are, are a part of a canvas that's going to become a vast, uh, beautiful work of art in eternity. Good, good. Well, Scott, I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation, so in the spirit of hospitality, I want you to have the last word. So what about Christian unity, life in the church, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit? What do you want our yeah. readers to depart today thinking about? Take as long as you like. Well, I think the, the thing about it is, 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 uh, is the significance of the local church for our understanding of the Christian life. I'm really wounded today by the number of people who are diminishing the church and who think they can live a Christian life apart from the church because uh, they think it's all about individual uh, formation and individual contribution so that they can do something significant in the world. I'm saddened by this, not because those aren't good things, because those are very good things. I want people to grow individually and to do something significant, although I think the word significant is overrated. 
um, I think that they should do something faithful. Um, the Christian life is not an individual doing something significant in the world. The Christian life is about creating a fellowship in this world that witnesses to an alternative reality that God has unleashed in the new creation through the resurrection of Jesus from among the dead. So that I think that the essence of the Christian life is your local church and embodying the way of God in the world uh, as a witness to the world and, in a sense, as judgment on the world for its worldliness because we live the way God wants us to live among the people of God. So Paul's understanding of the Christian life was not how can you become a better Christian. Paul's understanding of the Christian life was how can Corinth become a better church and how can you participate in what God wants Corinth to be. That, that's, that's what I hope people can take away, that the church is the essence of what God wants for the Christian life. Very good. Scott McKnight, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be with you. Listeners, thank you for downloading and listening along with us. The book is A Fellowship of Difference, Showing the World God's Design for Life Together. It's from Zondervan, and I will link to it on the show notes for this uh, for this episode. Uh, the Christian Humanist Profiles is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor for this episode is Britt Stack. And I am Nathan Gilmore saying, Go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord. <laughs>